It is an exciting morning. We've got a lot going on around here. Um, had our first wedding here yesterday. And yeah. And then after service today, we've got an experience called Rooted. It's a 10-week discipleship journey, and uh, some of you are signed up for it. Actually, 100 individuals have signed up for it, including our kids. And then some of you, yeah, you can clap for that too. And some of you are maybe making a decision in the moment, and so we're excited for that as well. Um, If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, uh, we're going to do a series now going through this letter that was written, and the way that we're titling it is Resilient Hope in Hostile Times. In the first century, Christians had a lot that they were going through. It was challenging. There was persecution. Uh, There was some confusion about what they were in relation to other religions and things of that nature. And, And now we find ourselves today living in a world where there's a growing hostility toward followers of Christ. And so we, we want to think very clearly about how to be faithful in the midst of this season. And I do believe this letter is for us. So I'm going to read the first two verses, and then we'll pray and we will get to work. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1, reads like this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Let's pray. Lord, we pray right now that you would take this word and you would speak to us, that by your Spirit we would hear your voice loud and clear. And we pray that as a community of faith, we would be grounded in the realities of of this Scripture. Help us to be your people in this season, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to look at this in three steps. I'm I'm going to move monitors a little bit, too. Sometimes we get a little bit of weird feedback, and I don't want you guys to have a hard time hearing me. So uh, three things that we'll look at. First off, who you are. And you get this statement about the Christian identity in these two verses here of who we are. Uh, And it's so important. It's so important to understand what God says of you uh, in, in maybe contrast to what the world may say of you. But who you are is the first thing that we'll look at. The second thing that we'll look at is how you became who you are, right? Because God is going to say some stuff about you that to me is very surprising. If I look at my own life, if I look at you know, what God is, is suggesting here, I go, how did, how did that happen? And we see our salvation then as God explains, look, I've been involved in this and, and known about this from the very outset of time itself. This is my heart for you, and this is what I've done in Christ and through the Holy Spirit and by the knowledge of God the Father. So who you are, how you became who you are, and finally, well, what does that mean then? What, is it, what does it look like to live life in light of these realities. So let's get to work. First off, who you are. As you, as you step into this letter, it's, uh, the way they would do it is they'd write kind of like, here's who it's from, here's who it's to, and then they'd fill in the body of the letter. So, so Peter starts it out like this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's introducing himself to us 
And he's reminding us of who he is and why he has this unique ability to speak into our lives. Peter, an apostle. Now that term has a range of meanings. At its broadest sense, it means a messenger, a sent one. In fact, in the first century, they had, they had trading vessels that were called apostolic ships. You know, ships that were sent for a purpose. But Peter's not just saying he's a sent messenger. He's saying a, a very technical term. He's authorized by God to speak on God's behalf about Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and what it means. Peter is a first-hand eyewitness to the crucifixion of Christ and his resurrection and his teaching, and he has been commissioned to speak on behalf of the Lord. So he is telling us something as this kind of person. Here's why it matters. What we most need as we consider our, our identity is we need to hear from God. The world will say all kinds of different things. I think you're like this. I think you ought to be like this. Here's your identity. Maybe this is you. What we need is for God to speak in such a way that, we, that it resonates with our soul. And we go, there is wisdom here from our maker. That's what we need. And, and that question of identity, it haunts us. is a haunting part of the human experience. We're all wandering through life wondering, what am I made for? Why am I on earth? What's my purpose in life? And the world keeps speaking out and saying, here's what you should do. Here's how you should feel. Here's how you should think. What we need is to hear from Scripture. And so Peter gives us a clue here that he's saying, I'm speaking on behalf of God. What I'm going to say then, it'll be very, very helpful for you. He tells us then who we are, verse 1, halfway through it, to God's elect scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's saying to the church, wherever you are, here's what you need to know. He's writing this letter, and it's a general letter because he, he sends it in all these different directions. A lot of times in the Bible, what you find is a specific letter, like somebody could write to uh, a church in a, in a location like Galatia. So the letter is to them, it's to their congregation. Maybe, maybe if Peter were around today, he'd write to Park City, he'd say, hey guys, I've noticed some things about you and we better deal with it. And it'd be very specific to us and our experience. But Peter here is writing a general letter and he's saying, we're going to send this out everywhere. It's going to go to all the, all the churches, all the people and all these different places. And the reason why is it is universally important. It is universally relevant. These are general principles that apply to all believers in all places. And here's what he says, to God's elect. It's a surprising term, but he's saying to God's elect. And he's not trying to be tricky here with words. Uh, he's, he's saying that you are a people, he'll go on to define it like this, chosen by God the Father. You are a people who have been chosen by God. You are God's elect. You are the people that God has looked on with his affection and has saved you in that sense. You are God's chosen people. Now, he's using this word in a way that is pastoral. He's not presenting an idea that, that we need to spar about. There's a lot of discussion. Well, what does election mean? What, is, what does it mean exactly that God can elect people? Does that mean he's doing stuff against our will? What does that look like exactly? Well, he, Peter's not really trying to get into that here. He's trying to tell us something that we need. He's saying, you are a people that are chosen by God. Here's why you need to know this you're going to suffer. In fact, that's one of the major themes in this letter. If you're faithful to Christ, persecution will come. 
darkness hates light. You will go through the world and you will experience troubles. And when that happens, you better be mindful of what God thinks about you. You better be aware of how God deals with you. You are his. In the letter, he'll say, you are God's treasured possession. He owns it all. It's all his. But when he looks on you, his beloved people, you are his treasure. So you are the elect and you need this because when you're suffering, one of the very first things to go out out the window is your confidence in your relationship with God. When you're suffering, you begin to feel like this. I'm not sure that God likes me. I'm not confident. If I'm going through this, how can I be sure that God is on my side? If you look at my circumstances, you you can add it all up and you'll come to the conclusion, maybe God doesn't like me. I've told this part of my story many times, but I think it's, a, it's helpful for us to kind of get into the language of the soul. Uh, before I was a full-time pastor, I started an action sports ministry. And we would use skateboarding and snowboarding and wakeboarding as a platform to share the gospel message. And so we had professional athletes and semi-professional athletes, and we would travel around and we would gather crowds saying, hey, we'll do an exhibition of these sports, but we are Christians and we're going to share the message of Jesus Christ. So we would do the sport, and then people would share their testimonies, and the gospel would be presented. In the midst of that ministry that was a startup, I was the founder and director of it. In the midst of the startup of that ministry, I injured myself. I tore the bicep of my arm, and I couldn't do the sport. I had to have a surgery, and I was sidelined for many months. While that was happening, at the very same time, I was pursuing Ashley, my, my wife now but I was pursuing her and we started dating. And then we broke up. So I can't do my job and the love of my life and I are not in a relationship. I'm dealing with God in this moment with language like this. God, I am trying to faithfully serve you. I know it's not perfect. I know it's in some regards messy because I was young and dumb, but I was saying to God, I'm trying to serve you. I'm not in like willful disobedience. I'm not doing a bunch of stupid things. I'm trying to serve you to the best of my ability. Why does my life look like this? Why is my life falling apart? And you begin to say things like this, God, do you even like me? Or do you, because if I look at my life, it feels a little bit like maybe he hates my guts, right? And so when you're suffering and you're going through those traumatic experiences and you're trying to add up your life and you're going, why is this happening? What you need to be mindful of is, You are God's. You are his elect. He set his affection on you before the foundation of the earth was laid. You belong to him. And that truth will steady you in those seasons. That's how Peter uses this word repeatedly throughout the letter. It is a truth that is meant to be at the very foundation of who we are so that we might be steadied in the midst of a life that is hostile and unfriendly to faithfulness to God. You belong to God. You are elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces. Look at verse 1 again. To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And what? so the second word here, the the exile piece, it's it's an interesting one. It's a word that actually means it's like a person who's in a location temporarily. And so it sometimes is translated pilgrim, or sojourner, or stranger in a foreign land, but it's the idea that 
as a Christian, not only do you belong to God, but also you relate to the world in a different way. Now, obviously, he's writing to all these Christians in all these different places, and there is a, a, a portion of what he's saying that's accurate in the sense that they're, they're scattered all over. But this is true of every believer in every place. Every believer in every place is actually a pilgrim and a stranger in their land. And the reason why is not because he's making a geographical assessment. He's making a theological point. If you follow God, you are transferred into his kingdom. Your citizenship is in heaven. And no matter where you land, you actually become a representative of another world. So you're going to find yourself feeling an awful lot like, I don't fully fit here, wherever you might live. Listen, I grew up in Rockton, Illinois, maybe 11 miles from where we're at right now. I went to school here. I grew up here on, you know, at the tree farm. Then I moved away very briefly, and I'm back here, and this is where I'm serving now. And the tr- So this is home. This is very much home for me. Familiar. All my relationships are here. But when I think about my identity in Christ, one of the things that I have to acknowledge is this is foreign territory. And the reason why is I am a member of the kingdom of God. And even though I'm familiar with this location, I am a foreigner and a stranger. Let's look at how the Bible uses these terms in a couple other places. In Hebrews 11, we'll put it up on the screen. The writer to the Hebrews uses the same batch of words that Peter uses in his letter. It says, By faith, Abraham, another biblical character, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. God said, Abraham, I'm calling you. You're going to go to this place. I'll show you when we get there. And he obeyed and he went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a strange, this is the word, like a stranger and in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. So Abraham, the father of the faith, when he goes on that faith journey with God, and God says, I'm going to bring you into that land, he goes and he lives there, and he lives by faith, but he's a foreigner in that land. He's living in tents, basing his life off of that promise, but living as a stranger there. Two verses later, in Hebrews 11:13. 13, Some other people are listed, and the writer puts it like this. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. We are a people who are foreigners and strangers. When you're thinking about your identity as a follower of God, you have to come to the conclusion, you belong to him, and that means that your citizenship primarily, is in heaven with God. That you are awaiting a Savior from there, but in the meantime, you live very active and very present and very engaged in the here and now. But you live as a foreigner and a stranger, a sojourner. Uh, many years ago when we did First Peter as a youth group, I was a youth group leader, we, we called it sojourners. And one of the students got a tattoo that says sojourners on, on her arm. We, we are a people who are pilgrims in this land. And, and the reason why you need to know that is you are never going to feel totally at home anywhere if you are following God. 
And we're grateful for our citizenship in this great country and all of the privileges and benefits, and we celebrate that, and we're engaged in, in civic activity here, and we'll talk about that in a few weeks as well. But one of the things that we have to be mindful of is because we are believers, we are going to be strangers. And because we are strangers, we are going to experience hostility. That's who you are. Secondly, how you became who you are. This is talking about your salvation now. How did you become this sort of person? How did you become God's elect, a stranger in the land? Well, simply put, it's a work of God. God brought about your salvation start to finish. And if you look at it here in verses 2, starting there at the beginning of verse 2 and through the middle of it, what you find is that God is at work in every element of your salvation. In fact, it tells us that your salvation is on account of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're all intricately involved in your salvation. So let's look at them one at a time. God chose you. Verse 2. You are those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God the Father chose you. He chose me. If you're a believer, that is a truth that you can embrace. One of the reasons why you're saved is because God determined that it was something he wanted to do. It's his will. It is his foreknowledge that brought this saving work apart. And you are chosen. And again, this is incredible, incredible language because what it's doing is it's hijacking the Old Testament and what God would say of people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Israelites. And and now it's being applied to you and me. This is wild because Ed Clowney, one of the commentators, he puts it like this. He says, nothing is more astonishing than that he should call these Gentiles the chosen of God the Father. Remember, Peter, Peter had a really hard time with this idea because he understood his ethnicity. He was a part of the Israelites. He was very proud of that. And so when God started to allow his grace to spill over into other people, he was like, I don't know if this is okay. I don't think Gentiles are supposed to be a part of this thing too. And it was a learning process for him, remember? He, he couldn't understand. No, 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 the Israelites are the chosen people of God. Well, now he's taking, it's the Spirit of God in him saying, any believer in the state line area, any believer in all of Asia Minor, anybody who's a follower of God, in this, in this true sense of it, who's saved through faith in Jesus Christ, they're chosen by God the Father. For Peter to even say that is breathtaking, but he's looking at you and me and he's saying, you are chosen by God according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This idea is that God, this is not, this is not God's plan B. It's not like he had to revise the, the schedule this, is, this has always been his intent. That's what the word foreknowledge is getting at. This is the plan of God. The saving work of us is the, is the plan that God had before the foundation of the world. That's why in verse 20, the same concept is applied to Christ. Christ was chosen before the foundation of the world. So this is no afterthought. This is God's heart. He's always been thinking of you. He's always been mindful of you. And he has brought about your salvation. And then it tells us that this is a work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. You've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, but you have been set apart by 
the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has taken you and said, you're mine. You belong to me. and You are now consecrated to the Lord. You have special purposes. You might look like everybody else. You might be walking through Target later and go, a lot of us just look alike. But the Holy Spirit says, no, you belong to me. You are, you are uniquely set apart for the purposes of God. This idea shows up in the Old Testament. They would um, consecrate different items in the temple. So they had this kind of religious situation, and they had all these different activities in there. And some of the utensils just looked normal, like one was a shovel, and you might see a shovel in a sandbox, or you might see it in the temple. But when that thing was assigned to the temple, it became different. That shovel that you could play in the sand with, or you could go to the beach and dig some stuff up, that shovel, when God said, this is mine, it becomes holy to him. You no longer take that thing out to to dig a hole in, in the yard. This thing belongs to God. The Holy Spirit comes on us and says, you are now set apart. You are sanctified to God. As a believer, you are set apart to God and his purposes for your life. And it is a very special and holy calling. That's why any of us should just kind of walk around going, I can't believe this. I can't believe my salvation. I can't believe what the Lord is doing. But this is incredible. Finally, it's for obedience to Christ. Look at the end of verse 2. It says, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. We, we are called and saved and chosen in order that we might live by faith in the Son of God. We are called to a life of obedience, and, and that, that should be no trouble for us because, honestly, if you understand your salvation, you should be so amazed by it that the only thing you can think of is, how can I live in a way that's pleasing to God? If he did that for me, then I'll do anything for him in response to, to his love for me. So this whole letter then teases out that idea of what does it look like to live by faith in Christ? What does it entail to walk by faith in the Son of God? What does it look like to be obedient in the here and now? And so your salvation is the work of God. It is the work of the Father. It's the work of the Son. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Finally, the third thing we we need to look at is what does that mean for life? And we find this at the very end of verse 2. It's a blessing or a benediction. And Peter says it like this. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. These two incredible terms, and he says, this is yours in in your faith. This is yours, and may it be so in abundance. May this just be multiplied in your life. In fact, Ed Clowney puts it like this. Grace and peace is a miniature of the whole letter. This introductory idea, this is what he's going to do. The rest of the letter is going to help us understand what does it look like to live in grace and peace. Grace is the reality of what God has done for us, and it is the, it's a major theme. So we're at the very front end of the letter, and he's saying, here's what it's about. Here's who I am. Here's what I'm writing. Here, here's who I'm writing to, but here's kind of the purpose of my letter. It's about grace and peace. And then at the end, he, books end it, he book ends it like this. Uh, we'll put it up on the screen. It's that fifth and final chapter. As he's closing out the letter, he'll say this, I have written to you briefly encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who's in Babylon, the church in Rome, is what he's saying there. The church in Rome, chosen together with you, sends her greetings. He's saying, this is the reason why I wrote you. 
so that you would understand the true grace of God and that you would stand firm in it. So what is it? What is the grace of God? Because that word, we can throw that out there and it just feels nebulous. Well, the grace of God, according to Peter in his own letter, the grace of God is the saving work of God for sinners. 1 Peter 5, verse 10, it says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. That's that saving work. It's God giving us a gift that we don't deserve and we cannot earn. But God in grace rescues us from sin. And then that grace, it sustains us. That grace helps us in the journey of being faithful to God. Look at verse 10 of chapter 5. It says, And the God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. So the grace saves you and it sustains you. It's both the entry point into the Christian life and it's the, the thing that maintains you along the way. And you, so, you and I, we so desperately need this. We need the grace of God in our lives. Finally, he says peace. And again, this is not just some formality of, hey, you know, peace out, guys. I'm writing, you know, like, this is just kind of how we interact. No, this is him saying, here's what I want for you. I want you to experience grace, and I want you to experience peace. I want you to experience harmony in your life. And, and he's saying this to a group of people who suffering's already happening. And as he writes the letter, he tells them it's going to ramp up. And as you look at church history in the first century, sure enough, Nero persecuted Christians and actually in large scale in such a dramatic way that he would even take the bodies of Christians and turn them into human torches. That's the kind of suffering that was going on in this season. And so he's writing to this church and he's saying, I want you to experience peace. How on earth would you do that if your life is threatened, if your loved ones are in jeopardy, if, you, if your commitment to Christ puts you in harm's way? How are we going to live at peace? That, that sounds nonsensical. It sounds like that, those shouldn't go together. But that's exactly what Peter is saying. If you are a sojourner, if you are an alien and a stranger, if you've been chosen to God, you will suffer. Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have troubles, but take heart. I've overcome this world. You will suffer but you can do so in a manner that is full of peace. One quick case study, and then we'll wrap up. Think about Peter, the author. Think about the transforming work of the gospel in his own heart. You guys maybe are familiar with, with stories about Peter. He was one of those dudes who would just kind of say what was on his mind. He'd never think about it. And sometimes that was a good thing. The Lord said to him one time, hey, who do you guys say that I am? And he confesses. He says, we believe you are Messiah, you are the Son of God. And, and the Lord says, well done, Peter. The Father has given that to you. And I'm going to build my church on that. But then the next moment, what does he do? He doesn't, he so just, just you know, pukes out everything he's, he's thinking. And when the Lord tells him that trouble's coming, he goes, no, 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 no. That'll never happen to you. I'll never allow it. And then the Lord has to look at him and say, get behind me, Satan. It's a bad day when the Lord looks at you and says, you know, you're like Satan right now. But he says that to Peter. Peter's just kind of that, shoots from the hip, doesn't think about anything. So it doesn't surprise me when they're in the Garden of Gethsemane and the soldiers are coming to arrest Jesus. What does Peter do? Pulls out a sword, he's chopping at the dude's head, he lops off his arm, or his ear. 
He lops off the dude's ear. And Jesus says to him, put your sword away. Put your sword away. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, I could, I could call down legions of angels right now. So he had this fearfulness that I can't let anything bad happen. He doesn't have a peace about him in that moment. But then where do we find him in our letter? We find him in Rome. We find him writing a letter to believers who are experiencing persecution and suffering. And what is his messaging? Guys, we're going to be okay. Don't be surprised by these fiery trials. This is not strange. This is not odd that this is going on. You can have peace. You don't have to wring your hands. You don't have to freak out. You don't have to get a sword and try to lop people's heads off. You will be okay. And the messaging of the whole letter is really this, this message of non-retaliatory peacefulness. It tells them, honor the emperor. Are you kidding me? Nero, you want us to honor Nero? No, thank you. But he's saying, look, you can have a, you can have a crummy employer. You, you can be going through all these different awful situations, but you're a Christian. So you have access to the peace of God. You can go through all kinds of things and you're going to be just fine. Trust in the power of the gospel. That's what the gospel can do. It can change us. It can change us from pe people who are fearful and fretting and just wondering, the sky's falling, the sky's falling. And it can turn us into people who have confident hope in the saving work of God. Let's believe him. Let's trust in Christ. And let's be God's elect exiles in this world for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to embrace this incredible identity that you've given to all believers in all, all places. Help us to have confidence that we are yours, that we belong to you, that suffering is not some you know, thing that, that should never happen to Christians, but, but in fact, it is kind of a normal part of the Christian experience. Help us to believe that and help us to walk by faith as aliens and strangers in this land because we are citizens of your kingdom. So help us to represent you well. In Jesus' name, amen.